thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Oh, Chris, I'm so excited to be connecting with you. Well, that's that's mutual. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. Chris, before we get on to anything, I've wanted to ask you this for years. Can you just describe your setting? What What is all around you? How do you... How are you able to answer everything? What do you set up for yourself? Uh, well, where I am right now, I'm in a studio and I'm surrounded by molecules of air, uh, which includes nitrogen, four-fifths <laughs> of it, and 20% oxygen. And I'm looking at a blue wall because there's some reflective plates that, well, they're not reflective, they're, they're acoustic damping sort of plates up the wall, which mean that I'm not all echoey and nasty. Uh, and, and it's Blinking freezing because it's the middle of winter um, and someone forgot to turn the heating on. But I'll shiver my way through it. But <laughs> that's sort of my immediate environment. Um, in terms of my professional life, well, I am a medical doctor. I spend half my time being a consultant at a hospital, uh, which is Cambridge University's teaching hospital called Adam Brooks. And the other half of my time, I run the Naked Scientists. We make programs like this one and others for, for various places and broadcasters around the world. And I have great fun digging into what all the, the latest breakthroughs are, for example, and what people are discovering week on week and talking to some of the world's brightest people. It's incredible, Chris. I must tell you, of all the things that happened to me on a Friday, you are one of my favorite. And, and this is a big oh, week you. for science, isn't it? We're going to be talking well, it's about a, big week for science. a really big week for science. special moon, a super moon. What makes it so super? Well, this is the, the report that earlier in this week the moon will have looked bigger than it has done for about 40 or 50 years. It hasn't got any bigger. Uh, it's dubbed a supermoon because the moon's appearances of a larger moon. The phenomenon occurs because the moon orbits the Earth. The orbit is not purely circular. It's a bit elliptical. An ellipse is a squashed circle. So what that means is that at some points in its orbit, the moon is slightly further away from the Earth, and in other points on its orbit, the moon is slightly closer to the Earth, just naturally. And that's the same cycle it's been doing for four and a half billion years. It is getting slightly further away from the Earth every year by a couple of centimetres, but what's a couple of centimetres between friends? But... The reason we have a full moon is that in certain positions on its orbit and at certain positions during the day on the Earth, then you're going to see the moon fully illuminated by the sun, which is shining effectively over our shoulder and onto the surface of the moon, which then reflects that light back to us. Now, if the illumination of the full face of the moon coincides with a nice clear night, nighttime, and the moon being on the trajectory of that ellipse that brings it closer to the Earth's surface then you get what we dub a super moon because it's going to look a bit bigger because it's going to be nice and bright and it's on its closest approach to the Earth 
naturally on its orbit. And these sorts of configurations don't happen terribly often. Um, the last time was about 40, 50 years ago. And so that's why it's caught everyone's attention. And people are dubbing it, the moon is closer to the Earth than ever before. Well, the moon's frequently this close to the Earth. It's just not being illuminated in the way that we saw it being illuminated this week. So it looked a bit bigger for us. That's fascinating, Chris. Uh, I must say in, in Joburg, it was pretty cloudy and I couldn't quite catch a glimpse, but I saw some incredible pictures from all over. Really impressive stuff. Does this have anything to do with the statement once in a blue moon or is that something completely different? No, I mean, this is uh, intended to to talk about rarity of events. Um, the, the thing about the, the supermoon is it is a rare event for the reasons I've outlined, but it also highlights another quite important uh, visual phenomenon which is that moons look larger when they are close to the horizon and this is because of the way your brain works because our brains work out how big to make us think things are by comparing them to each other when you see the moon low on the horizon which joe berg's pretty high you're going to see some well it's not cloudy obviously you're going to see the moon on, on a horizon when you've got things in the foreground against which to compare the moon the brain knows well the moon's a long way away and i can see these trees and houses and things nearby and they're quite big the moon is big itself so therefore it must be really really big and so the brain interprets the moon as looking bigger than it really is once it goes high up in the sky same with the sun actually it's further it's, it's no further away but it's not got anything in the foreground against which you can compare it because it's high up in the sky now. So it actually looks a bit smaller to you or your brain makes you think it's a bit smaller. It's actually, if you do the measurements, it hasn't changed in size at all. Oh, that's incredible. I've actually always wondered that. So that's amazing. Look, I, I could be, ask you questions uh, forever, but we've got to get other people in on, on, on the action. 011-883-0702 or in Cape Town, 021-446-0567. Lines are open. SMS lines are 31702 and 31567. You can also tweet your questions to hashtag Friday Standin. Your science questions all answered by Chris. Andrew. From Pretoria, Andrew, what's your question? Pretoria. Good morning. Good morning, Chris. Hi, Andrew. All right. Uh, speaking about the moon, let's carry on. Um, there is a relationship between the sun, the earth, and the moon. For instance, if you multiply the diameter of the moon by 400, you get the diameter of the sun. If you multiply the distance of the moon from the earth by 400, it gives you the distance between the earth and the sun. The number of kilometers the moon turns on its axis every day is 400. The number of kilometers the earth turns on its axis in a day is 40,000. That's the 40s. Now, if you multiply the diameter of the earth by 109, you get the diameter of the sun. If you multiply the diameter of the sun by 109 again, it gives you the distance between the earth and the sun and many, many other relationships. Now, if you take this association in isolation, you might consider it to be a coincidence. But uh, there comes a time when coincidences are so frequent that Something else is behind working that. And last but not least, every celestial object, whether planet, star, comet, or meteorite, must be solid. 
If the moon is hollow, someone have made it. I will listen on the radio. Thank you. Wow. Thank you for that, Andrew. Chris, any comments on that? Uh, yes. Um, there's obviously a lot of, of uh, numbers were stated there, and I haven't got uh, independent corroboration of any of those things, so I'd have to check those numbers. So I don't know is the answer to uh, the, the relationships across all these numbers. But it's very easy, because of the way our brain works, to see relationships in things which is purely coincidental. So I, I think it's very important to keep an open mind on these sorts of things. Sometimes you see, well, well why is the number 400 important here? Why, why not multiply them by 302 or 16? You know, why is the number 400 cropping up? It, it may well just be coincidence here. And so I would be very, very sceptical. The moon is certainly not hollow. The moon was formed about 4.57 billion years ago. We know that there was pro probably a dramatic collision. We dub it the big splat. When the Earth first formed, another planet the size of Mars ended up on collision course with the Earth. The two collided, and a lot of the Earth's material from its surface, its crust material, was ejected into space because the Earth was spinning incredibly fast at that time. And uh, we know this, there was another paper in the journal Nature a couple of weeks ago that uh, gave further credence to this idea. And this material that was ejected into space then coalesced to form our moon. And as far as we know, the moon is absolutely solid, although it's a lot smaller than the Earth. And uh, so I think that, yes, to summarise the answer, you can often see these sorts of apparent coincidences, I'll say, but relationships in nature. You have to keep a very open mind because the way your brain works is to see patterns in things. That's how you learn. And so sometimes we attribute patterns and, and importance and significance to things when, in, in fact, they're entirely coincidental. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. We're with Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. This is like something really special for me because my favorite part of Fridays is listening to you, Chris. And just time for a few questions. I must say, I've just seen the sharks from Shark Tank walk into the studio, really excited to be speaking to them in a few minutes. But we've got a few minutes. Harold from Midrand. Yes, hi, good afternoon, Chris. Uh, just a very quick rundown. Um, about two years ago, I started getting what we call a, a bowel movement problem. Went to the specialist and said, listen, Based on your age, let's do what they call a colonoscopy, colonoscopy, and a scope. Everything came out negative. And one day after that happened, something very strange happened to my body, which I seem not to be able to get rid of. And that is what I call, uh, or what I've looked on the internet, it's called a burning skin sensation. My skin is continuously burning like fire. And uh, I don't know, I don't know. There is nobody that I can think of that I haven't seen yet. And everybody just says, we don't know what it is. I went for a CTC scan, everything. And I don't know if you can maybe just direct me. Thank you, Harold. This, uh, this admit, is where you put um, your uh, doctor hat on, hey, Chris? Yeah, I suppose so. But I, I must admit, I, I don't know the answer to that one. I've no idea why you would suffer from this. But the human body is a mysterious thing, and we are all very different. And, you know, the, you're, you're only on this planet once. You have an, a specific life experience, and different things happen to you. You catch different things. Different diseases occur. As a result, they manifest in different ways because we're all different. I think that needs investigating. I don't know what's causing it, but I would certainly, if it's a recurrent thing and it's a new thing and it's linked to something happening to you, as in you can put your finger on when it started to happen and you're pretty sure that that thing triggered it to happen, the two might be connected and it should be looked into. Amanda in Centurion, what's your question? 
Oh, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'd like to ask um, Dr. Chris. Um, there's a research that has recently been going around online which says that taking fresh milk daily, daily intake of fresh milk, full-fat cream milk, is linked with causing breast cancer. I really don't understand the, um, the details and the connection and everything. I just want him to break it down to a layman's language. Does it mean we have to stop taking milk in order to prevent breast cancer or it's true or it's not true? Good morning, Amanda. Um, the answer is that uh, people have linked through what we call epidemiological studies. In other words, you look at large groups of people in the population and you ask what happens to these people and then you ask what factors are in the lifestyles of these people and then you look to see if there are relationships between things the people do and certain outcomes and this is how for instance uh, Sir Richard Dole discovered that smoking causes lung cancer because he recruited a very large number of doctors who smoked and doctors who didn't and compared over a lifetime what happened to those doctors and was able to show that smoking irrefutably causes cancer so you're looking for a cause and an effect. Now, it's really hard to do something like that for milk because it's ubiquitous. We are all being exposed to it. We're all drinking it all the time. Now, what's certainly true, though, is if you say, well, let's look at certain lifestyle factors and breast cancer risk. Breast cancer does run in families, so a really strong determinant of your risk of getting breast cancer is your family history. And one of the first things that a doctor will ask you if you say, well, I'm worried about breast cancer, they will say... Tell me about your family history. Do you have a close relative or an excess of close relatives who have all had this disease? Because there are certain genes that we know about that are inherited from parents into their offspring which are directly linked to your risk of breast cancer. So that's number one. The number two thing, though, is lifestyle. And there are lots of factors that are linked to breast cancer. One is smoking. Smoking's really bad. It causes lots and lots of different cancers. Another is diet and obesity. People who gain too much weight have a higher risk of breast cancer. And this is probably because people who are overweight, the fat cells in the body produce excess amounts of the female hormone estrogen and a fraction of breast cancers, a reasonable proportion, respond to oestrogen. So the oestrogen in your blood naturally makes the cancer grow faster. Therefore, being overweight has an association with that. There are a whole range of these sorts of factors. Some people eschew milk on the grounds that milk is full of growth factors, and if you already have a cancer, then taking these growth factors into your body might stimulate the growth of the cancer. I haven't read any good research on whether or not this is a real risk or whether this is someone saying, well, that sounds like a good idea, I'm, I'm going to believe it. I'd need to look into that. Um, but at the moment, I would still put milk in your tea and enjoy it, but just don't put so much in that you put on too much weight. Fascinating. Charles in Cape Town, what's your question? Hi. Hi, Chris. Uh, cholesterol is a big Hi, problem Charles. today. Uh, statins, do they help? How do they work? And uh, do coenzyme Q10s assist? Hi, Charles. Well, uh, the, the, the statins are class of molecules or drugs which are called HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, which is why we call them statins. Life's too short to go around saying their full name. That enzyme is the rate-limiting step in the production of cholesterol in your cells. Because if you have high blood cholesterol, we know that cholesterol levels, and specifically LDL, low-density lipoprotein type cholesterol in the blood, is associated 
with heart disease. So if you have high levels of LDL, you have a higher risk of having heart disease, in other words, furring up of arteries. If you cut down the amount of fat in your diet, you do have a modest effect on your levels of cholesterol in the blood, but not very much, and that's because the body needs cholesterol, and so cells have the ability to make it. And if you naturally just make too much, then you naturally have high levels in your blood and you naturally have a higher level of heart disease. So when you take a statin, you block your body's ability to make as much cholesterol, therefore less gets made and therefore less finds its way into your bloodstream in the first place. Uh, that's part of the effect of statins. But when doctors have, have looked at the risk of having a heart attack in people who are on statins and people who are not on statins, they find that there appears to be a benefit which is not explainable purely on the grounds of lowering your cholesterol. Something else seems to be going on. And although they don't know yet how, statins also appear to reduce the risk that a damaged area of the artery because when your arteries fur up, you get what's called an, an atheromatous plaque. And when you have, for instance, a heart attack, it's because the plaque ruptures or bursts open and causes a blood clot to form inside the artery. That happening is less frequent in people on statins than people who are not on statins. So one theory is that these statins independently are also affecting the stability and the strength and integrity of the lining of your arteries and making heart attacks independently less likely to happen just than can be accounted for by cholesterol alone. And some people have suggested that this is such a dramatic effect that everyone should be on statins, we should put them in the water supply. Um, I'm not advocating that, but certainly if you have high cholesterol and it's worth having a check, it's worth seeing what your blood levels are, you, you, may, ha you may find that they can benefit you. Bobby in Rustenburg has uh, an existential question for us. Bobby. Hello, good morning, Chris. Uh, Hi. Uh, I want to know the impact of an all-out nuclear uh, war on human life. Uh, will it lead to mass extinction like it happened with the, uh, the dinosaurs, or is it exaggerated? What is the truth from a scientific point of view? And the reason I'm asking is because I see many sites after the election of Donald Trump, you know, uh, suggest that there's a high risk of a, of a, a third world war that will involve nuclear weapons. What is the truth from reality? What is the uh, reality uh, from fiction? What is the truth? First of all, what are nuclear weapons? Well, a nuclear weapon is a nuclear-powered explosive device. So when people fired nuclear weapons in anger in the Second World War, so we have one example of this occurring, uh, those bombs that were dropped over Japan were nuclear devices in which the nuclear material explodes, it produces an enormous amount of energy, it did so in the air over the two cities that were devastated by this, and the release of energy effectively cooks everybody on the ground, because it's not the radiation that kills people, it is the enormous release of energy which causes a huge heating effect, and you end up with a shockwave because the air becomes superheated uh, around the nuclear device, and that superheated air just goes ripping through the whole area and, and burns people to death. It's not people dying of radiation. That came afterwards, because obviously a spin-off of, of nuclear war is that the uh, material that uh, explodes, it, that's a nuclear-powered reaction, and you will produce nuclear products which are radioactive, and those are linked to cancer. So there are really two effects from what happened in Japan. One was an immediate effect, 
lots and lots of people were killed by a devastating, very hot explosion. But then lots more people died later because of exposure to radiation. Now, the same effectively is going to happen today, except that the devices we have are much bigger, they're more numerous, they're more powerful, and we've got more people who could be in the firing line. So therefore, if there was a nuclear war, uh, one, you would see lots of people instantly being killed, you would see lots of areas being completely laid waste to on the Earth's surface. You would also release and contaminate huge areas of the Earth's surface with radioactive material, and you would eject into the atmosphere lots of radioactive material, so even if you weren't in the firing line, you're going to get a dose of it. And the other material that goes up into the atmosphere is going to include fine dusts and other particles, and this would probably trigger what we dub a nuclear winter because those particles would get into the atmosphere, they would have a reflecting effect on sunlight and reflect energy back out into space, which would cool the planet. And the consequence of that is that climate would change, weather patterns would change, crops wouldn't grow as well, we wouldn't be able to feed people as well, and then there'd probably be another war because everyone was starving hungry and, and trying to scrape a living off the last bits of the Earth that were still inhabitable. So I think it's really critical, most people realise that if they do press the big button, they're probably really risking the future of of mankind on earth i was convinced that this morning i asked for good stories happy stories it's friday and we finish off with this existential let's hope no one presses a button we need Thank another you. we need another question to finish on don't we? we need a nice question to finish on yeah i want to i, I want to ask a good question tell me tell me about what you think is the risk of environmental change with trump policies how's that well, did you know, I was discussing this uh, on Sunday because a friend of mine is a guy called Doug Crawford Brown and he set up something called the, climate, the, the Cambridge Centre for Climate Change Mitigation Research. In other words, he's asking what are the risks of climate change happening and, and assuming that they're going to happen, what can we do to stop them? And we were discussing the implications of this and they're, they're pretty fearsome because if we don't take the threat of climate change more seriously and put in place more stringent measures to protect our environment because there are just too many people. There are 7.2 plus billion people on Earth and everyone ignores the point that the reason we have a problem is, not, is nothing to do with how much carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere per se. It's, it's the number of people and it's the number of people who are going to embrace uh, the lifestyle that leads to a huge carbon footprint in the future. That's what we've got to worry about. And so um, Mr. Trump's wall uh, is going to probably release a lot of carbon dioxide in the near term, but then it will absorb some carbon dioxide because we're going to find out coming up, you know, that, that cement is, when it, when it goes off and turns into concrete, is very good at pulling carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere so that there'll be some, some effect of building Mr. Trump's wall. But in terms of encouraging people to have a smaller carbon footprint, we need to do this universally and we also need to encourage everybody to think about the planet and think there are too many people who don't have 15 children. So you're saying have less kids, basically? I'm saying we need to live sustainably. And uh, in some economies and some countries, people for religious but also for reasons of survival tend to have big families. And we need to educate people better, explain that this is not sustainable, that a world already with 7 billion people on it is consuming resources at the rate of two planet Earths a year, not one. And if we go to the trend, follow the trend we're on, 
by 2050 we might have as many as 12 billion people on Earth. And the recent increase in the prediction from about 9 billion to up to 12 billion was based on population explosion in Africa. Because African countries are growing their populations in some places incredibly fast and the countries can't support this in the long term and it's going to cause really, really big problems and people need to take it really seriously and think about this. I think it's important that we take personal responsibility for our actions and realize that every single one of us makes a difference. Thank you, Chris, the naked scientist. Thank you. Such fun having you on the show. And right, everything's changing now. We're going from being on radio to being all over. We are going to be Facebook Live and 702.co.za live streaming. So you can see me in action with the Sharks for the next hour and a half. You can see us all live. So please get on there. Check us out. It's going to be really interesting. And just a reminder, there's a competition. You can win 10,000 Rand. Hashtag Friday Stand In. Send us your brilliant business idea in a tweet. Coming up after the break, after the news, we have the Sharks in the studio. Don't miss it. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.